You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Jamie Dumont. I'm Rob Russo. And this is The The Fabulous Fabulous Invalid. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm well, so I have, we have to clear something up. <laughs> Uh-oh. Because last week, and here you may be wondering, which was fabulous, by the way. What's you, coming? I'm nervous. Well, you should be. <laughs> you called 1776 one of your favorite shows. Did you mean that? Oh, it's brilliant. I absolutely, yeah. I think it's completely underrated. Well, not underrated. It won Best Musical. Why? Why do, what, why do people love this show? I don't get it. Oh, it's Explain such... it to me. I mean... I, I don't understand what people don't love about it. Peter Stone's book is absolutely brilliant. He okay. like dramatizes the process of America becoming a country through this, the lens of these like founding fathers who we never see as like real people with like personalities and flaws and. Okay, outside of he plays the violin, name one other song from the show. Oh, but that's a cheap. Come on, come on. That's not a good. good do it, do it. I dare you, do it. Sit down, John. Sit down, John. Sit down, John. For God's sake, John, sit down. Okay, yeah? get closer to your mic, because I'm using <laughs> this shit. I, I am. I did 1776 in high school, and I of course you did. played Samuel Chase, of the course. rather uh, rotund uh, delegate from Maryland. Did you wear a fat suit? Uh, I did. It was built into the costume. Yeah. Uh, it was very well, hot. I also person. had to be like eating the whole show. It was terrible. Um, That's what we do here. <laughs> different. Funny how you've grown uh, into this role no, so, so nicely. I had the solo line song, one ought to open up a window in that song, which is uh-huh. famous. Uh, I'm usually sleeping by really that point. Fantastic. It's the opening number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My Jesus. point exactly. Jesus. No, and then of course there is uh, that incredible song. Um, I was about to say an act two, but it's... it's You're looking it up. I am. You're looking it up. Um, I said name a song, and I didn't say Google it. Molasses to Rum, which... Yeah, but uh, you couldn't Rutledge recall sings. that could on your though. own. That doesn't count. Don't give me that face, Rob Russo. John Cullum was incredible. John Cullum is incredible in everything. That doesn't Thank you. make it You're a great welcome. show. I think it's a great show. Oh, it's a snooze fest. I don't understand you people. You clearly hate America. Well, obviously. <laughs> That's the only logical answer. But I did like your, that was very good, you may be wondering. I mean, I just have to pick at that one point, but I I thought that was very Um, good, so thank you. Yeah, it's a fun little, you know, trip down memory lane, not memory lane. I don't know, whatever it is, let's go, now let's eat. Come on, come on, Um, Mr. Chase, let's grab a burger. Wait, but, (laughs) I love that. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to confirm that it did win the Tony Award in 1969, because now I started to question myself. It did, but, but Follies didn't win the Tony Award a a few years Later. Later. Yeah. Well, so, but it's you know, it's nothing's perfect. It's a fraught endeavor. What's a fraught endeavor? It's a fraught endeavor. Best musical, you know? I mean, a looking fraught back, endeavor. Looking back historically, Who I mean, you? Avenue Chase? Q won Best Who Musical. Who talks like that? <laughs> a Rob fraught Russo. endeavor. It is. No, but looking back, I mean, it's you don't always get it right. It, just like they write overtures before the show opens, so they don't know which songs are going to be the hit songs. You know, in the moment... Two Gentlemen of Verona just hit in a certain way that overtook Follies, right? I mean... I still don't get that. Yeah, well, because we weren't Have you ever seen there. it? Did you see it at the Delacorte? I didn't see it at the Delacorte. They did it in D.C. at the Shakespeare Theater. Um, 
and it was fun. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a yeah. it's a cute show. It's I, not. I love follies. that score. In fact, I think it's a better score than Hair, which is probably a controversial take because it's actually a score. It actually tells a story. Hair is like a jumble of songs. All scores don't need to tell a story, Rob Bruce. Well, all scores don't need to have you know fifteen memorable songs. Jamie, seventeen seventy six. Name me some songs. You know, it's like. I went back once, did a deep dive into theater talk. Every season they do a Tony episode. Well, they used to because they don't exist anymore. And one day I was doing some project and I just needed noise. So I listened to Michael Riedel and um, Susan Haskins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, host this episode from like, you know, 2010 to 2018. And every year they would talk about best musical. They'd get to the category. Someone would name a show that was like celebrated an artistic achievement. And every time Michael Riedel would say, well, hum me a song. Hum me the song from the band's visit, or hum me the song from whatever. And I just would sit there and go, that's not what makes a great show a great show, being able to hum a song. It's cheap. Are you equating me to Michael Riedel? Not you, but the question and the point of view, yes. The future of our show (laughs) hangs in the balance on how you answer this next question. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, well, no, Stephen Sondheim himself, because uh, he's a font of wisdom, once said that when someone says something isn't memorable, uh, isn't uh, hummable, what they're saying is that they don't, they haven't uh, 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 internalized it yet, right? It means that it's not familiar to them. That's what they're really saying, because everything's hummable. Coming from the man who wrote hummable, mummable, melody. Right, exactly. Write more, work hard. Yeah. Yeah. Leave your name at the door. Yeah. And Less avant garde. And what's brilliant about that moment is that that producer who's saying, um, you know, why well, can't da 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 da, right? He's regurgitating to them almost immediately while criticizing them that, that the song isn't hummable. He's singing it back to them, which right. means that it is hummable. And not only that, but that melody ends up being their hit song in their musical years later. We started out like a song. Started out quiet and slow with no surprise. Um, so it's a, you pointed out a key brilliant moment of Stephen Sondheim. Not only was he poking fun at himself, but he was also poking fun at his critics. And in, in the process, proving them wrong by repeating a melody that is clearly hummable. That's great. That's swell. The other stuff is well. It isn't every day I hear a score this strong. The fellas, if I may, there's only one thing wrong. Not a tune you can hum. There's not a tune you go bum 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 da You need a tune to go bum 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 da Give me a melody. Why can't you throw them a crumb? What's wrong with letting them tap their toes a bit? I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit. Give me some melody. Ah, sure, I know it's not that kind of show. But can't you have a score that's sort of in between? We'll play a little more, show you what I mean. Live in New York. I always hated the dirt, the heat, the noise. But ever since I met you, I listen, boys. Maybe it's me, but that's just not a hum of a mum of a mum of a melody. Right, Moacan. Leave your name with the girl. Less about God. Leave your name with the girl. Just write a plain old melody.
Thank you for clearing that <laughs> up for us, Rob. For an episode that doesn't have Jennifer or Leslie, this has the most singing <laughs> right? and, yeah. and the most like, <laughs> like <laughs> host tension. Too. A lot of tension. <laughs> dramatic tension. moments. I think, I, think, I think Aaron is saying it's time for the girls to come back. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> This week, we are delighted to be joined by Ted Sperling and John Miller, the music director and artistic advisor, respectively, of the new NYU Broadway Orchestra, an exciting initiative we'll learn more about in our discussion. Ted is a musical director, supervisor, conductor, arranger, composer, orchestrator extraordinaire, with 15 Broadway credits under his belt, including the current revival of My Fair Lady. And John is a legendary bass player, music coordinator, and occasional actor and vocalist who has worked on more than 130 Broadway shows, which I can't wait to talk about. <laughs> Ted, John, welcome to The Fabulous Invalid. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> uh, well, for our listeners who have likely not heard about this program yet because it is so new, I was wondering if one or both of you could give a short description of the NYU Broadway Orchestra. Ted, you go first. <laughs> it's a course that we're offering at NYU for undergraduates and graduate students through the Steinhardt Conservatory branch of NYU. And the idea is to train future Broadway pit musicians and give them a, a leg up. One of the functions is to train the orchestra to actually play productions at NYU, because mm. there was a desire on the faculty's part at NYU to up the level of the Broadway pits that they, for their own shows. Mm. So they get an opportunity to prepare one big project and actually perform it in front of an audience. Then we have these reading sessions, um, like um, we did each semester we do at least three shows in contrasting styles. And as part of that, um, John invites people who have played those shows on Broadway to come and sit in with, with the kids and play alongside them, listen to them, give pointers, share their stories. Yeah, it's, uh, I think from the response that we get from the kids, hearing, the, the kids have told us that the mentors, who were, as Ted said, sitting next to them, playing and telling their stories is invaluable to them because we try to have the mentors tell what their journey was starting from music school to being freelance musicians in New York City, doing tremendous amount of different uh, work and doing Broadway shows as well. So I think that's something that the kids have shared with us that's extremely meaningful and helpful to them. And it's the kind of thing that probably only can happen in New York and with somebody like John, who, who knows every single person's ever played a Broadway show. <laughs> I mean, we literally had the original drummer from Dreamgirls, not just from the original Broadway production, but from all the early workshops of that show. And he wow. could tell yeah. us about how that show developed, how they started actually with just a drummer in the room, not even a pianist. And then he could sit down at the drums and demonstrate for our student drummer exactly how to play these tunes, and then listen to our student do them and give him pointers. But the idea isn't for them to necessarily be wowed by how great these Broadway players are, and more with the Broadway players sharing with them what they've learned. So it's sort of the realities of what actually goes on. Playing in a pit is not all glamorous, it's hard work, and these are the things that they learn. And part of the class is we talk to them about the reality of what it's going to be like the moment you leave college and how to best maneuver the minefields and how to best put yourself in positions where people will know about you and talk about the real hardcore realities of freelance work as musicians. 
and also how to take advantage of their college time to prepare for the real world. I right. wish that I had had some different training when I was in school that would have made me feel more confident entering the work workplace. How does one get a job in an orchestra? I'm out of college. I play an instrument. How do I how do I book a gig? Well, everyone might give you a different answer. My view is that you just must be out there playing all the time, regardless of what it is. You know, us musicians, we do not have agents. We do not have anyone who makes money trying to get us a gig. And freelance work, other than the real strict uh, uh, classical world, or maybe the world of Radio City, we do not have auditions. So if we don't have agents, if we don't have auditions, how does it work? My view is it works that you just play everything from a street fair that someone asks you to play to a, a, a restaurant to as much out there playing and not just necessarily practicing in your room with the metronome because we never know who we're going to be playing with and every, every other musician is our agent, as far as I'm concerned. And that's how the network works, correct? I think so. Yeah. It's a lot about personal recommendations. Yeah. And I think if you are very skilled and you seem like a good person, <laughs> people recognize that. We're always scouting for, for new talent. And so you want to make a mark. You want to impress people on the first go round. Right. And that we're trying to make sure they make a good first impression, that they don't blow their first chances. Right. Um, and we talk to them about all the extra stuff that goes into impressing somebody. It's not just your playing. No, it's how you present yourself. It's how you. It's it's what you look like. I mean, not what you look like, but it's it's how you're dressed. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. and that mm. and that doesn't always get taught either. I wish somebody had taught me in college the reality <laughs> of what, what life is like when, right. you, when you leave those walls, mm. those four walls, because it's not, I don't think it's taught. Also, I would say that it, that then translates to the playing too. That right. I found in these rehearsals I've been having recently where we actually are right now preparing for a concert. So it's one thing if we're just reading a show for the interest of reading through Dreamgirls or reading through Hairspray. Uh, but right now we're doing the program that has a lot of different kinds of material on it, and we're going to be in front of an audience, and I want them to shine. Um, so I'm trying to inspire them to do that extra bit of effort and invest more of themselves in the playing so that it's not just the bare minimum, mm. because the bare minimum won't get you very far right. in the real world either. But even in the world of NYU and in our performance, I want to make sure that they shine and that they are filling the music with personality, with joy, with intensity, with drama. And that seems to be fairly new information for some of them, at least. <laughs> yeah. And well, th this, this, this concert that you're talking about, is this the one on April 10th? Yes. And this is what we were sitting in a rehearsal for, correct? correct? Normally, in, in each semester, we'd be devoting a big chunk of rehearsal time to preparing the main stage show. And this semester, they chose a show that had a small orchestration, so not that many students were going to be involved. Mm -hmm. So they decided another way of keeping everybody active and interested would be to prepare a concert. And so we're doing a very ambitious program. You yeah. mentioned Gypsy. We're doing the Gypsy Overture, which is very difficult. Very difficult. You know, it's, and it, you know, it's obviously arguably one of the greatest overtures sure. ever written. Not, not arguably, it is. It is. <laughs> and I, I, nobody's no arguing there. Yeah. But, but sitting and listening to you guys break it down section by section like you did, for somebody even for myself who listens to it quite frequently, mm -hmm. 
I, it was a whole new experience hearing all the pieces. Not to mention that you, Ted, gave a bit of history about right. a certain section that I think is quite famous. And I, I want to say it was Seymour Red Press that played it, but I think I have that incorrect. Is that Seymour did play Red? We call him Red Press. <laughs> he did play that show, and he does have a solo that's featured in the overture. Oh, that's what you were talking about. Okay. Yes, I was trying to explain to. There's a saxophone player who was brand new to the program this spring, so I didn't even know him, and this was my first rehearsal with him, and and he actually didn't even play this solo. It was just no one played it, and it went by, and. I asked him, I said, do you have this in your music? And he said, yes, but it's a very quick instrument change and I, I didn't make it. And so I said, well, you gotta make it because <laughs> when you listen to the album, it's such an iconic moment and we actually know the guy who played it. So we have to honor you know, his legacy. <laughs> So that little bit of history, that that story about Seymour Red Press, um, that was one of a few stories I heard you tell. You 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 talked a little bit. You also recorded. Uh, it's not recorded. You you rehearsed. Anything goes. The overture. Yes. And there was a moment where you stopped and you gave a little bit of history about who Cole Porter was, what his sort of motivation was, how he was unique. You talked a little bit about um, you know Irving Berlin and the other popular um, composers at the time, and 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 I thought that's part of the program that these kids may not expect that they're getting, right? But that's hugely important. I agree. I feel like research is discounted these days. I see that with singers, too. They come to people like me for help finding audition material. It's like, guys, go to the library. (laughs) Can't you do this research, too? You're going to find more unusual stuff that way, and it will be unique to you. Uh, I did that when I was in college. I took full advantage of our college library, and I I listened to cast albums. I read all these books about shows. And if you're going to make this your specialty, you've got to be an expert. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly if you're at a school like NYU that's in New York City, we have one of the great performing arts libraries in the country, if not in the world, right? It, it's it's all there for you to, to, to get to. And I think knowing the history of how things developed is important. And I may be a little bit, you know, fuddy-duddy-ish in some respects that way, but I... I think you can appreciate contemporary shows better if you know how they got there. And you can um, see, so this concert is actually devised to trace the changing styles of orchestration from Showboat in 1927 <laughs> to Hairspray. And do you do it through overtures, or do you do it We're through... doing primarily through overtures, um, but you know certain shows don't really have overtures, mm. and overtures are really hard. Yeah. Um, and I thought it would be nice to have some singing as part of the program, because Broadway is so much about singing. Um, so we have two great, great soloists joining us, Lindsay Mendez, who recently won the Tony mm. for Carousel, and Kapathia Jenkins, ah. with whom I've done many, many concerts ah. over decades, one of my favorites. So they're going to be our guests, and we're also going to have some students from the NYU program joining them. Um, so it'll, inter- it'll be interspersed overtures and solos. You know, one, one of the interesting things, uh, when I see Ted tell these stories that are fascinating to me, and I watch the kids. And some of the kids, when Ted will say, he'll mention 
Ethel Merman to make a particular point. And we'll see that some of the kids are really sincerely smiling, getting it. They have done the research. They know the name Ethel Merman. They know what Ted means and stuff, and they really got it. Some of them, and this is just my interpretation, some of them kind of nod out of respect <laughs> to Ted, and some of them are completely, utterly blank. When the mentors come in, I can't tell you, Ted, how many times the mentors, after the thing is over, call me and say they were riveted by the stories that Ted was saying, because from their world, everything Ted was saying completely clicked for them. They understood it all. So it's great that these kids are hearing these things, and it's just sort of interesting, as Ted says, how many of them are really doing the research? We don't really know, but the good news is they're hearing it. Mm. History matters. It oh, really yeah. does. Right. And for me, I, th I always like to imagine putting myself in the writer's seat. Somebody wrote these notes. Somebody mm. wrote the songs that, that turned into these overtures. Somebody then orchestrated them. Why did they make the decisions they made? Right. How can we bring to life what was in their heads? We talked about first days of orchestra rehearsals for shows and how, how nervous-making it can be for the com composer and the orchestrator to hear their stuff on the orchestra for the first time, and how exciting, too. <laughs> but we really, we do break things down. Um, I rehearse section, you know, just the strings by themselves, or just the brass by themselves, or just the rhythm section, and then build it back up, and try to explain from an orchestrator's point of view why it is the way it is, and how they can make it come to life more, if they understand that. There was a moment when you were going through the Anything Goes Overture, yes. and there was, a, there was a moment where it's supposed to sound like a cork popping. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody in the room knew that until you told us all. Even I didn't, as a big yeah. fan of that. It never occurred to me that that was what was going on. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a ton of things like that in all scores, in all music that you're working on. Um, that where there are these little, what's the term everybody uses? Easter eggs, these little um, <laughs> hidden things. Um, I still don't really know what that term means, but, but I think it means that there's little surprises and things yes. you wouldn't know about. And, and it, I would assume that's universal to everything in music. It's true, I'm running out of time, because we have this April 10th deadline, we only rehearse <laughs> once a week, but I could so easily spend an hour on 20 measures, you right. know, and, and we could get it better and better, and I could, you know, but... There's a limit, so mm. I'm trying to choose my moments. <laughs> Pick your battle. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Rob and I went and listened to a rehearsal of the NYU Orchestra, and here's a tiny bit of Ted teaching the class. So what song is this that we just finished? You're the top, right? So if you had to pick a drink that goes with You're the Top, what would it be? <laughs> what? <laughs> champagne, right. So don't you hear the champagne corks popping in it, right? He lived in a world of champagne. He lived at the Waldorf Astoria. Let's do the you're the top section. Let's do a little slow motion just to get it accurate. One, two, one, two. A couple things. Anybody hear wrong notes in 148? Let's do it a little faster. 125? One, two, one, two, three. 
So how long is a class? It's three hours. And it's once a week? Once a week. Three hours. And so that material that you were working on last week when we were in your class, were they all picking it up for the first time or had they worked on any of it before? I think we were rehearsing it for the first time. We had given them the music in advance and hoped that they would look at it on their own. But uh, I spent the, I think you were at the second rehearsal for this concert and we had spent one day already doing other pieces. I couldn't do the whole program in one rehearsal. I tried this last week and I still ran out of time. There's never enough time. No. <laughs> what was incredible to observe, though, um, was how you know you would break down the orchestration lines, right? And you'd have just the strings perform, or you'd have just um, the rhythm section perform. Um, and in in the process of doing it, not only did the the performances get sharper and better because they're you know working through the material, but also the the questions you would ask and the the notes you would give and the history you would give. Not, not only just changed the, the technical performance, but it changed the emotional quality of it, um, which was something you know, to watch happen in real time. And that's why I was grinning from ear to ear, um, because you so rarely ever get the opportunity to hear an orchestration broke down into its pieces and to appreciate the craft that goes into it. But then also that other element that I think audiences you know, f- might feel, because that's the point, but they don't stop to think about, which is that there is an emotional quality, there is a, a, an artistic choice behind everything that happens in, in, in that orchestration. And I think a lot of people in the workplace, too, are expecting someone to tell them what to do. Mm. And it's easy to fall into that role. And it's also easy to, for me to fall in the role of the person who tells them what to do. Right. But it's so much more exciting when both parties are bringing ideas to the table. A lot of times that Ted and I are doing, and especially Ted on, on the podium, are encouraging these kids to give more, give more, and then conductor, conductor. I believe Ted can talk about this with far more um, experience than I than I have. But I believe that I always tell players, give more, give more, give more, and have the conductor say, not so much better than the conductor saying, give me more, give me more. But I have to recognize that these are young kids. And this class is just part of an extremely full, busy day that these guys have. These guys have to leave right at 1 o'clock to go on to their next class. Some of them get in a little bit late, not because, not because they're, they're lackadaisical about it, but they probably had a homework assignment that, that, that they had to do and stuff. So uh, we just try to, uh, try to recognize that they are not professional musicians. They're learning how to be doing that, but they're learning other things as well. I actually had to crack down a little bit this last week <laughs> because I don't want our course to be considered what we called a gut when I was in college. You know, mm-hmm. A course you just show up for and that's all right. you have to do. There actually is homework to do for this course. Right. You have to practice. Like I got to the end of the anything, overture, anything Goes Overture, just the last eight measures, suddenly there are a lot, there's a flurry of notes. And we got there and it just fell apart entirely. And it's like, come on guys, it, it's not Tchaikovsky. You know? It's not that hard. If you had spent 10 minutes woodshedding these eight bars, we wouldn't be wasting time right now mm-hmm. for you to do that in class. Similarly, if you're doing the Gypsy Overtures, don't you think you should know the six songs that it's based on? Right. So when she says, light the lights, you know, right. like, you know, curtain up, like that you can play it with that kind of right. excitement. You know right. what the song is, right. you know? Same thing with the, the cork popping moment you mentioned on You're the Top from Anything right. Goes, you know? 
if you know that song, then you know how to play it in the overture. If you're, you're just reading notes on a page in, with no words, no context, you're not going to. So how difficult it is, is it? They actually did Anything Goes as the, as the main stage production last semester. So they should actually know that too. Right. You know, um, and you can tell when people haven't been rehearsing, obviously, mm-hmm. right? That, that's a, there's a clear... Not in the professional world. I, I'm always wondering, I do a lot of uh, guests conducting engagements right now with symphony orchestras mm. and you know I'm in awe of these players <laughs> and sometimes I can't tell if they're just brilliant brilliant sight readers right. which I suspect <laughs> or whether they've actually prepared for the rehearsal in, in advance yeah. I think frankly they do prepare but um, they're also brilliant sight readers and we're trying John has been constantly asking and reminding that that sight reading is something we should be yeah. cultivating in this so class. So sight reading is something you can teach, or is it something that you have in you, or both? My, my answer to that is it's just something you have to be doing. Mm. You have to sit in your room, look at some new music, put the metronome on, and start doing that. And uh, the more you do it, the more comfortable you will be doing it, because that is part of the reality of being a freelance musician. And again, I want to sort of reiterate what, what Ted is saying. When Professor Jonathan Haas first spoke to us, the idea that I think that he wanted Ted and I doing this is to really give these kids a hands-on professional leg up. So these kids are there. It's not an extracurricular activity for them. It's not like a theory class. It's not this supposedly are kids who this is what they want to be doing. So this is real, real hands-on professional guidance. And John also stresses in our classes that playing Broadway probably should just be one component of a successful career that the people who play Broadway these days play a lot of other things too. And they can play in jazz clubs, they can play in symphony orchestras, and for the ballet, for the opera, chamber music. And that's one of the reasons we have such good orchestras now in Broadway, because they have that flexibility to take shows off to do other kinds of things. And that way, we can get the best players to do the shows. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a conductor and orchestrator and um, a music supervisor. Like, what? That's a, is that too big of a question? It's a good question. <laughs> it, it plagues and haunts me. <laughs> um, Sorry. No, no, it's a good question. I'm happy to try to explain it. Um, well, the orchestrator part is pretty clear. Um, an orchestrator takes a piano part and adapts it for an orchestra. And sometimes the composer is given little clues for what he or she would like to hear. But it's the orchestrator's expertise that then translates what is normally on just two staves of music to something that could have 30 staves of music mm-hmm. and knows exactly when the flutes should be playing or the trombones should be playing and what notes they play. And then the orchestration can very much change or enhance the character of the music depending on the style of the orchestrator. Um, and I've done some orchestrating and work and I actually won my Tony Award for that, um, Light in the Piazza. Arranging um, is less about writing for specific instruments, it's more about taking a basic piece of material and adapting it for a specific moment in the show. So dance arrangers use themes from all the pertinent songs and weave together music that fits the dancing the choreographer has in mind. Vocal arrangers will arrange the song for the chorus or for a chamber group of singers. Um, 
And orchestrators often arrange the overtures for shows. Right. Mm. And traditionally, in the, especially in this golden era, that was their responsibility. Um, music directors are pretty much the point person on a show for everything musical. So they're the conduit through which the composer, orchestrator, dance arranger, vocal arranger do their work to please the director, choreographer, and ultimately the audience. Right. And the music director, is he the person that's usually in the pit conducting? It can be. I've oh, done well. it both ways. There are various models. Uh, traditionally, in the old days, it was the same person as the conductor. Um, sometimes you want a, a separate conductor for a variety of reasons. I like actually being able to be out in the audience for previews and seeing it from the audience's perspective, listening to the sound design, not being occupied with waving my arms. I can have a clearer view of what's going on on stage and be more helpful to my collaborators. So on a show like My Fair Lady, where I am also conducting, I do take some performances off during previews so I can just put myself in an audience seat. Because that really informs what else you have to do in terms of just getting everything completed, correct? Yeah, the music director is part of a triumvirate usually that's in charge of creating a production. It's the director, choreographer, and music director that make all the big performance decisions. Mm. And how about a music coordinator? I know, John, that's the title that I threw out in your, bi in your bio. The best part about the job, for me, is to be able to hire uh, de deserving musicians for deserving work and the worst part of it is, and it, uh, it, it gets to me a lot, is not to be able to hire so many more deserving players. The role of the music coordinator is to make sure that when the conductor gives the downbeat, that the conductor, the composer, the orchestrator, the music supervisor, everyone turns around and says, this is the greatest band I've ever heard. Mm. That's the goal. That's a good goal. Yeah. Well, you're both very, very busy men, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, but I do have a question. You have other things going on outside of this class at NYU. Are you, Ted, are you working on anything um, coming up? Yeah, the immediate thing uh, that I thought would be of interest to your listeners is three performances of Lady in the Dark that I'm both directing and conducting at City Center with my group Master Voices. Excellent. And when is that? That's April 25th through 27th. Um, and for those who don't know, Lady in the Dark is a show by Moss Hart, Ira Gershwin, and Kurt Vile, And it hasn't been seen in New York for 25 years. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's a fascinating show. It predates Oklahoma by two years. It's very experimental in form. It's full of gorgeous music. We have an amazing cast. It's going to be staged and danced, and we have the Orchestra of St. Luke's in the pit. Who's and in the cast? Anyone? Victoria Clark is starring as Liza oh, sure. Elliott. And, <laughs> Heard of her. Um, uh, we're about to announce the rest of the cast next Excellent. week. Excellent. Um, that so, did Christine Ebersole do a Christine Ebersole did it at Encores in their very first season. Was that the one that was 20 years ago? Yeah, 25 yeah. 25 years, years ago. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And John, what do you have going on? You have a band, correct? Well, yes, I have a band. Uh, uh, but let me first say, one of the things that I'm most excited about are are two shows that are gonna be opening up very soon. One is uh, Ain't Too Proud, The Music of the Temptations, and uh, the revival of Oklahoma. <laughs> and they're both just unbelievably thrilling and uh, imaginative, and uh, I think they're both gonna do extremely well, and the musicians are having a fantastic time in it, and uh, 
rightly so. There isn't a week that goes by that we don't talk about Oklahoma, yeah. this, this particular <laughs> revival right. yeah. on this show. Right. Sometimes I get in the 79 revival, which I was a <laughs> big, big fan of. Um, and there was one after that that I think... There was one in 2000 two, right? as well. I think I was Stroman. involved with that one. Were you? Yeah. With, after um, 130 shows, it's probably mm-hmm. hard to I, I <laughs> keep track. I think that was one that Kev, Kevin Stites. Yeah, that was yeah, the one yeah. with Trevor. And, and A2 Proud, is, they're about to start, right? They're, they're, yes. they're almost we about to begin... A week, uh, we open up in six days. Well, there you go. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, the, music, the musicianship on that show is mm. stunning. It yeah. really is. Well, they're, they're, they're all having a great time. And, and uh, we had, uh, I have my own band, which is made up of uh, lots of the, you know, it's, uh, it's called the John Miller Quartet Plus Three. So we have, <laughs> uh, uh, we have six other musicians that are all, uh, key major players in on the Broadway shows. The guitar player is now doing uh, Ain't Too Proud. The drummer does a Carole King show. Mm-hmm. The percussionist does a Carole King show. The saxophone player does a Carole King show when he's not out with the e- Eagles. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, the harmonica player is the busiest harmonica player <laughs> in the country. Uh, so when we did, we did a gig a couple of months ago at uh, the city winery, and we had a lot of the kids from the NYU orchestra oh, come cool. down oh. to meet all these players and stuff. And our next gig is at the cutting room on, we always play on a Monday night, because that's when Broadway players are always available. <laughs> um, Monday night at a place called the cutting room at nine o'clock. We just love to, to ask our, our guests if they can name the, the show or experience that they had early on in their life that sort of got them hooked onto the theater. So whoever wants to go first. Ted, you better go first because I'm not sure I have any. <laughs> I think I was incredibly influenced by Julie Andrews um, and not in the live theater because I just missed her live Broadway performances, but the sort of triple play of Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. then the next year, Sound of Music, both of which I went to see multiple times in the movie theater. And then her, and I think I, then actually Leslie Ann Warren's version of Cinderella, which was close <laughs> on the heels of those, which mm-hmm. of course was written for Julie Andrews originally. I think those three things just sort of hooked me on the idea of singing in a dramatic piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw, I was lucky, I saw some of these big stars. I saw Rex Harrison and My Fair Lady and Yul Brynner and The King and I also like in high school. And then Chorus Line was the first thing I bought my own ticket to, mm. and that was very impressive to me. That was a big, you know, we've asked this question. I can't believe I forgot to ask I this question. Thank you, Rob. Because <laughs> we do ask everyone this question, so we've asked it now 30 plus times. You're the first person to say Julie Andrews. Oh, really? Yeah. No, we get a lot of King and I, we get a lot of, we get a lot of Chorus Line, we get a lot of um, but I've, Fiddler, Fiddler, oh, Fiddler. Fiddler and um, uh, Singing in the Rain. That's a, that was a big movie for a surprising, not a surprising amount of people. But you're the first Julie Andrews, so that's excellent. <laughs> Huge Thank influence. You. Thank yeah. you for that. Check our bingo card. Nothing for you? Well, you know, I'm a bass player. Yeah. And like all musicians, we want one thing only for the phone to ring. <laughs> so uh, my experience, I can't necessarily say what drew me to theater. I can tell you... Uh, what got me to be a contractor. Hmm. I had worked a lot as a bass player with Cy Coleman. And I was involved with uh, a show that he did in the 70s called I Love My Wife. Um, And 
in the early 80s, he said to me, uh, I have this show called Barnum, <laughs> and uh, I need a contractor. Would you like to contract it? I knew nothing about contracting. Uh, I had maybe subbed two or three times on a couple of shows, but I knew nothing about Broadway from a musician's point of view. And I, I looked at Cy, and I said, Cy, absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me incredulously. He said, he said why? I said, Cy, I said, uh, I'm a single guy riding my motorcycle, playing bass in the recording studios, running around. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about contracting, but rumors that I had heard, whether they were true or not, were back in the olden days when there was kickbacks going on and something just that just sounded kind of slimy. Whether it was slimy or kickbacks going on, I don't really know. So I said, I said, I said a no. And then he said this great line to me that he loved to say for years. He said, I gotta give it to some schmuck, I'd just as soon give it to you. <laughs> so I said what I always say when I don't know what to do, I said, I'll get back to you. And I called all my pals. I said, what would you guys do? And every single one of them said the same thing. They said, try it. You might like it, you might love it, you might hate it. <laughs> try it once. I'm not sure I really, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no mentors, and I'm not sure I did, from my estimation, a great job with Barnum, but clearly a lot of people thought what I did was good and they kept on calling. So my experience with theater comes to it from just a working freelance player. Rob here with You May Be Wondering. Following our sit-down with Ted Sperling and John Miller, you may be wondering more about the composition of Broadway orchestras, which, while heard, are often invisible to audiences, or else so professional and perfect sounding that they can be easy to take for granted. It was once common for the orchestra pit and Broadway theaters to be elevated enough so that audience members could not only see the conductor, but also the players. Now that's rarely the case anymore. Lowered and sometimes not even visible, you occasionally do see a conductor, or sometimes the band and conductor are hidden altogether, backstage or understage, as is the case with the new musical Ain't Too Proud. Michael Bennett famously had the orchestra pit of the Schubert Theater covered with a cloth for a chorus line, because he didn't want the audience to see the band. A groundbreaking move, he even forbade the musicians from tuning up as the audience entered, so that their presence could be a surprise. In the years since Bennett's innovative move, where to place the orchestra has increasingly become not just a question of utility, but also an artistic decision central to the staging of several shows. Some houses without formal orchestra pits force creative teams to find novel ways to house musicians when they are used for musicals. At Studio 54, current home to Kiss Me Kate, the musicians are typically seated in four boxes flanking the auditorium, while Chicago at the Ambassador, Waitress at the Brooks Atkinson, Dear Evan Hansen at the Music Box, Come From Away at the Gerald Schoenfeld, be more chill at the Belasco, Oklahoma at the Circle in the Square, and Hadestown at the Walter Kerr all feature their bands on stage, either elevated or else on the deck with the performers. 
This showcases the contributions of the musicians while also allowing audiences to sit right up against the stage without a pit in the way. The musicians of the band's visit also double as characters, integrated in the staging of the show and supported by a small band offstage. Real estate aside, orchestrations typically dictate the size of a pit orchestra, making it a unique question for each musical production to answer. While it is true that a combination of budget consciousness, new technology, and changing musical requirements has generally reduced the size of Broadway pit orchestras over time, the 2017 revival of Sunset Boulevard made history with the largest Broadway orchestra ever, 40 players seated right on stage at the Palace Theater. The Phantom of the Opera and My Fair Lady are currently tied for having the largest pit orchestras on Broadway with 29 players each, and Wicked and The Lion King are not far behind with 25 and 24 each. Like any orchestra, when fully called upon by the score at hand, a Broadway pit orchestra will consist of the typical instrument departments organized by family, strings, brass, woodwind, rhythm, and percussion. Orchestrators decide what instruments will be used, then personnel are arranged, doubling up where feasible. As Ted Sperling points out, Broadway has a long tradition of woodwind doublers, where each musician in the reed section plays three to five instruments, sometimes even more, and that can apply to other sections as well. Synthesizer technology has increasingly allowed for reduced size, with some musicians and audiences worrying whether pit orchestras might someday be replaced altogether with pre-recorded or else electronically generated music. While artistic sensibilities around the vitality of live music make that future unlikely, the existence of the Musicians Union, Local 802 of the American Federation of Musicians, serves as a crucial bulwark for musicians. Under Local 802's production contracts, the union has established a minimum number of musicians for each of Broadway's 41 theaters that changes based on the size of each house. In 2003, producers tried to get rid of these minimums altogether, resulting in a week-long strike that forced every musical except Cabaret, which had a different contract for its onstage band, to go dark. In the end, the minimums were reduced, but not eliminated. And today, producers are permitted to petition Local 802, invoking a special situation clause to allow the employment of fewer musicians on a show than the established minimum for the theater, but only if the union agrees that the artistic conception of the show itself does not call for a standard-sized orchestra. This option is now flexed often, and a negotiation made on a show-by-show -show basis. Another aspect unique to Broadway orchestras is the frequency of subbing, which allows musicians to pursue other gigs, permits an infusion of new energy, and keeps the pit from growing stale. It's not uncommon at any given performance for a conductor to look out upon an orchestra peppered with unknown faces, and some subs can play multiple shows in any given week, presenting new challenges and opportunities for musicians and orchestras alike. As this episode has shown, there is nothing like a Broadway orchestra. The playing of show scores at this professional level is a unique experience that requires unique skills, and that's what makes the NYU Broadway Orchestra such a special and exciting new program. Next time you see a musical, make sure you give a nod to the musicians and make a habit of checking to see where they are and how big the ensemble is. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M, etc., and The Fabulous Invalid, LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.